And congratulations, Aiden and Lily. That is awesome. All the family and students over there watching. You guys can have a seat. And such an amazing thing to experience with you guys. Hey, have you have you heard anybody say this recently? You do you. Anybody heard that? Now, if, if you're on the older end of the spectrum, you might say, that's not even grammar, right? That's not even English. Younger people, you're like, yeah, people say that all the time, right? It's a phrase that has kind of worked its way into our language and this, you do you. Maybe you've said this to your spouse. You've gotten a fight and you walked off and you're like, you know what? You do you, which means at its simplest, you take care of yourself and I'll take care of myself. Or you focus on you and I'll focus on me because we can't control each other. So you do you and I'll do me. So at its simplest, it's like, hey, we'll take care of ourselves. But have you ever really stopped to think what a phrase might mean if you carry it out to its conclusion? Right, you do you means I give you license to do whatever you want. You can live your life however you want and I'll live my life however we want and it doesn't matter. You do you. That gives us license to kind of be crazy sometimes. Right, what about this statement? Have you heard this one? You only live once, or maybe YOLO would be how it's, it's abbreviated, right? You only live once. This has been with us for a while. It's not a new phrase. And at its simplest, it simply means, hey, you only have one shot at life. You only get one time to live on this earth, so live it up, right? And do the, do the best you can. Do the most you can do with this life. And there's a nugget of truth there, right? We only get one shot at this side of life in, on earth, Right? As Christians, we believe we actually will continue to live in one of two places. But on this side, on earth, you know, we, we've got one shot. So live it up, which isn't necessarily bad. But if you draw it out to its conclusion, that might just give us license to do whatever we want. You know what? You can do that crazy thing. You can believe that crazy idea. It doesn't matter. You only live once. So go for it. Could lead to some bad decision making if that is your life motto. Now, here's one I know you've heard. It is what it is. Raise your hand if you have said this recently. It is what it is. Right. It is what it is because it ain't what it ain't. Right. It is what it is. And so it's a phrase we used to say sometimes things get messed up and that's just the way it is. There's nothing that can be done about it. And there's some truth to that. We live in a broken world. So sometimes things get messed up and that is what it is. But if you play that out to its extreme, it basically says we have no control over anything. So don't even try. It doesn't matter. It is what it is, so what am I going to do about it? As if we have no control over any circumstances, which just really isn't true. We do have some control over decisions and things we do in our life. And then this isn't so much as a saying as it is a bumper sticker. Now, depending on what part of town you live in or you drive through, you're going to see this bumper sticker more often than others, right? But at its simplest, this, the different religious symbols and things, it's saying that we should treat each other equally and with dignity. And there's some truth to that, that we should be kind to all people. We should have dignity towards all people. But if you play this, this idea that we should all coexist in peace and harmony, but if you play it out all the way to the end, it's basically saying every religion and every idea is on equal ground. And so everything is right and true. And so we should just all coexist. You have your truth and you have your truth and I have my truth and it's all the same. It's all equal. And there's something in us that's like, that's probably not true. But if we try to live that way, then everybody just does whatever they want and things get a little chaotic. Right? We've got all these phrases that have worked their way into our language and really, I think, even into the way that we think and the way that we frame our lives. 
Today, we're going to look at some of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. So if, if you want to take out your Bible in the seat back, or if you brought one with you, that's fine. I always invite you into Scripture. If you're new with us and you need a Bible, take the one out of the seat back. You can put your name in it, take it home. It's yours to keep. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and it, it's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Because he was on the side of a mountain giving a sermon. So it's the Sermon on the Mount. Some crowds have been following Jesus. He retreated to a mountainside and he began to teach his disciples and those that came near him to listen. And what's really unique about this teaching is it's really one of the only extended pieces of teaching we have from Jesus. Most of the things we read about Jesus, most of the teaching he gives is in conversation or questions he answers. Somebody asks him a question, he gives an answer. Usually he doesn't answer, he just gives a different question. Or he tells a story, a parable. And so we have Jesus' teachings primarily in these interactions he had with people. But this is unique in that he, he kind of sits down and he lays out some really important teachings. It's two chapters long, Matthew 5 through 7. And even for those who don't follow Jesus, maybe, maybe you're not quite following him yet or you're, you're a little confused by that. Even those who don't follow Jesus would say his teachings are to be applauded. That most people would look at what he says in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and say, actually, these are really good teachings. These are really good things that we should do. They may deny his divinity, but they will uphold the ethical and moral standards that he lays out here. And so some of you are going to be familiar with what we've read, not because you follow Jesus, but because some of Western civilization is built on what Jesus says in Matthew 5 through 7. So he's going to lay out some really important teaching for us. And I like a way that he goes about it in chapter 5. At the first part, there's this phrase that he uses over and over. It's this right here. It says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. It is what it is. You only live once. The idea being that there are some things that people had been taught and people had learned. And they just believed they were true. And that's the way you're supposed to live. And act. And so Jesus is going to walk through some, I think, pretty difficult topics in Matthew chapter 5. And he's going to say, you've heard it said, this is what you should do, but I'm saying this over here. And so he's going to look at some of these cultural mottos, some of these things that they've learned to live by, and say, maybe you're missing part of the equation. And he's going to offer some greater insight into those areas. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We won't cover it all. But we're going to look at three important teachings he gives and three you've heard it said statements and draw some conclusions from that. So we're going to start chapter 5, verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The text will be on the screen. So this is his first you've heard it said statement. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Now, I'm going to assume that most people listening to Jesus believe they were decent people. Would you agree that probably most of you listening today would say, I'm a decent person? I don't let most of us walk around like Eeyore, I'm just a terrible person, right? We tend to believe that we live our lives decently, that that we're decent human beings. And I have to think that most of the people listening to Jesus believe that. And one thing that they would say, you know what really makes me a good person is that I haven't murdered anyone. I would assume most of the people listening to Jesus were not murderers. 
Now, there might have been one or two in there, but I'd say the bulk of them were not murderers. And a little context for you, that commandment not to murder had been with the Jewish people for, for thousands of years. Okay, God had set his people free from Egypt. The, the Israelites had become enslaved, and when they were freed by Moses, you might know the story, parting of the Red Sea and all that. When they get to, their, to where they're free on the other side of the river, God gives them some commands. I mean, they just spent 400 years in slavery, so they probably need to relearn how to operate with one another. And so he says, listen, here's some nice provisions. Here's some rules you should follow that might help you build a good life and a good society. Don't kill each other. That seems reasonable. And so that's one of the commands that God gives in the 10 commandments. You've heard of this. And yet I I think Jesus was kind of saying, you know what? If what makes us good is simply not killing someone, that might be a low standard. If what makes us good is simply not killing someone, that might be a really low standard to live by. Right, you came home from work, honey, did you kill anybody today? No, good job. Right, that's a low standard of morality to just try not to murder people. And that is hard for some of us more than others, I guess. But he's saying that's kind of a low standard. Right, it would be like you're standing on the street next to someone you don't like, someone you kind of hate, and the bus is coming and they step in front of it and you didn't stop them. Now you technically didn't murder, right? but you agree that something's wrong there, something wrong in, in my heart. You see, Jesus is saying, you've, you've been just following this command, but sort of missing the point because you see the hate in your heart is just as important as the blood on your hands. That simply not murdering each other is too low of a standard. I want to elevate your standards. That yes, you should not kill each other, but that hate is equivalent to murder. I mean, that's a hard teaching. Right? The people listening are like, well, man, have I murdered anyone? Have I hated anyone? That's a different question that Jesus is raising. Now, he called them all murderers, basically. Let's see where he's going to go next. You ready? Let's see what he talks about next. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her and his heart. I mean, good grief, Jesus. This is, you're going from murder straight into adultery. Did you not pay attention in teaching class? You need some sort of transition, right? To make people feel better. They're still trying to figure out if they're a murderer or not. And you've launched right into adultery. But it really makes sense because he's sort of saying the same thing. What you do with your heart is just as important as what you do with your body. You say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's good. But I'm elevating that standard because there's more to it than that. What you do with your heart is just as important as what you do with your body. This was one of the Ten Commandments that God had given them again. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. And so he's saying, listen, you know the laws and you're following the laws, but you're kind of missing the greater point. Not murdering is meant to help you all live together in peace. And not committing adultery is going to help you honor your relationships and your heart. You see, because if what makes for a healthy relationship is not cheating, that's a low standard. You come home from work, hey, honey, did you cheat on me today? No. Oh, good job. That's a low standard. If that's what gauges a healthy relationship, we're in trouble. All right? So you cannot commit adultery and still be a terrible spouse because you're kind of missing the point. 
He's saying what you do with your heart is as important as what you do with your body. You, you might have heard it said, look, but don't touch. Jesus would say that is not in the kingdom of heaven. A follower of Christ cannot live by that motto. Because to look with lust is as guilty as to commit the act. And I actually think this is one of the most damaging things about pornography and the use of that is that it normalizes adulterous activity. It creates lust in our hearts. And Jesus says that is just as dangerous as a physical act of adultery. And so we have to be very careful. Yeah, we can say we're following this rule, but we're missing the heart of it. Even if your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse gives you permission to view pornography, your allegiance is to Christ first and his commands. So that I would exclude, do not allow your significant other to give you license to commit adultery. Because God says that's out of bounds. Right, you've heard it said, just follow this rule. I'm saying there's more of a heart involved than just simply not committing an act of adultery. And so Jesus has covered murder and the people are like, wow, this is heavy. He's gone right to adultery. So he's probably gonna go to something a little lighter now, don't you think? Or do you think he might just go a little deeper into a little more difficult teaching? Look at Matthew 5, 31 with me. It has been said, or you've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, here is Jesus at his best. I have to imagine his disciples are like, boys, we better not quit our day job. It's gonna be a short ministry, right? His first major teaching, he's covered murder, adultery, and divorce right out of the gate, right? Probably not gonna be a popular guy. And yet Jesus goes right into it. Because what he's addressing is some really common misconceptions people have about these important topics that need to be addressed. And before we get any farther into divorce, let's go back and do what Jesus did and talk about marriage. Remember how I said earlier, a lot of Jesus's teachings are in interactions with people, questions people ask, and then he answers. He gives an extended teaching on divorce and marriage in another place in scripture. So I wanna look at that with you. It's Matthew chapter 19. It'll be right here on the screen. Some Pharisees came to test him. A Pharisee was a religious leader, by the way. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate or let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a wife, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So Jesus has given a teaching here on marriage and divorce and is connected to what's going on in Matthew chapter five. But let's, let's talk about marriage for a moment. You see, marriage is interwoven into the creation story. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's referring back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? God made Adam and it was the first time he looked at something and said, this is not good for Adam to be alone. So Adam was alone. And so God made him a helper, someone who could be his companion, made someone that he could be intimate with and create life with. And that became the first marriage. And God blessed that and said, be fruitful and multiply. 
And so we see the, the creation of marriage in the opening chapters of the Bible. And so Jesus is referencing that. Haven't you heard, haven't you read where marriage comes from? And something very important that we have to understand in order to understand Jesus' teaching is that he's saying you know, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Has anyone bought a new phone recently? Raise your hand if you've purchased a new cell phone. Anybody? Then you have less money than the person next to you because those things are expensive. You guys agree? I mean, you go to buy a new phone. It's like, good grief. They're so expensive. We just make payment plans now. We don't own phones. We lease them. And so I went and I bought a new phone several months ago. I put a little money down on it and then just financed the rest of it monthly payment, right? You, you probably do the same. And one of the neat things about that is it actually allows you to trade in your phone before you pay it off if you want to upgrade You see, I have a contract on my phone. I do not have a contract on my wife. She is not something I just make monthly payments on and then trade in when the next model arrives. You see, that's a contract. That is something I'm going to only use this or uphold this if you uphold your end of the deal. And then I'll just trade off if I need to. Jesus is saying, that's what's been going on in your culture. You've just been trading off. You've just been married for a little while and then you get tired of that and you divorce and you give a certificate which keeps you legal but not spiritual. He said, there's a problem there. You see, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. You see, a covenant is something much deeper. It's a spiritually binding agreement. The best example we have of this is our relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ is not a contract. He's not holding up a piece of paper and says, I'm waiting for them to break the rule and then I'm out of here. No, God says, I enter into a covenant relationship with you. And he sealed it with his blood on the cross that says, I will forever be with you and you will be with me and your sins will be forgiven if you choose to follow me. And he will never break his covenant with us. God loves us with a covenantal relationship, not a contractual relationship. And he's saying so many people in this, this crowd he's talking to had begun to view marriage as a contract, not a covenant. And I think this is one of the dangers we get into when we live together before we decide to get married. Because what we're really doing is entering into a contract with that person. I will live with you if you do these things. And we will split bills and it'll be very financially feasible. But what we're really missing is the heart of the relationship. And that is a deep covenant that we're going to make with one another. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard it said... You can get a divorce, just give a certificate, and that'll keep it legal. He's saying, no, something is going on much greater. In fact, I think this is why it's recorded in Malachi 2.16. God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. Now, I need to be very clear about something, because sadly, sometimes scripture gets weaponized to to heap shame and judgment and guilt on people who have experienced the pain of divorce. Can I make a very important distinction for you? That scripture says God hates divorce. It does not say God hates you. Do you see the difference? It says God hates divorce. It doesn't say he hates you. God loves you. Of course he hates divorce. He hates that for you. I've never met anyone that said, man, that last divorce was great. Can't wait till the next one. That's not how it works. If you would probably be in agreement with God, you would say, I hate divorce too, because it's painful. And it detaches us from that covenant that we were meant to have. And so God is saying, I I hate that you have to experience that. And there is provision given to us in scripture that allows for divorce. We're not getting into that today. It's beyond the context of this morning. But I just want you to know that God loves you and he will not break his covenantal relationship with you 
And don't let people weaponize scripture to make you feel guilty. God hates divorce, not you. Jesus is teaching that I'm elevating the importance of your covenants. What is he saying? Honor the covenant you made with your spouse. Honor that covenant. Don't view your marriage as a contract. No, it's spiritually binding. It's way more than just a legal document that unites two people. Now, those are some hard teachings. I mean, Jesus comes out of the gate with murder, adultery, and divorce. But if you would allow me, I would like to give three big ideas that I think Jesus shares through those three teachings. If you're taking notes, this would be a time to jot down these three things. By the way, you can text notes to that number we gave you earlier that was on the screen uh, where you can actually have an outline of today's message and all the scripture. But three things I think Jesus is revealing to his listeners and revealing to us as he was going through these teachings. And I think one thing he was revealing is that these are spiritual commands, not legal codes. Spiritual commands, not legal codes. Right, we so often as, as believers want to take the commands of Scripture and turn them into rules to follow because we can follow rules. And so we take all the things that Jesus says and we're like, well, there's a checklist and I'm going to check these off. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, you might have not murdering checked off and not committing adultery checked off and you might have legally gotten divorced and that's okay, but he's saying that's, you're missing the greater point. These are spiritual commands, not just legal codes that we follow. And there's a distinction there. You see, we are spiritual people. If we follow Christ, we live in the spirit. You know, I can be a law-abiding citizen and still be a terrible person. I can can follow every traffic law. I can not speed and still give you the bird. What does that say about my heart? Right, I'm following the rules, but my heart is corrupted, you see. That's what Jesus is saying. You can follow the rules and your heart still be corrupt. And that should not be in the kingdom of heaven that he is trying to bring to earth. I don't know that Jesus is looking for law-abiding citizens as much as he is as people who are willing to be changed in their spirit to follow him. Paul says it this way in Romans 8 9. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So you might be wondering, what does this look like in real life? What does this look like applicably like, if that's a word, applicably? uh, What does this look like in application? Here's an example. You could go to church every week and you could feel really good about that. And I would say that's a good habit to create. But if you're a jerk to your coworkers, an absent father in the home and a cold-hearted husband, you've missed the point. You might say, I get up every morning and read my Bible and have my quiet time. And I would say that's a good discipline. But if you slander people on social media, I think maybe you've missed the point. You might say, hey, look, I I try to use my my influence. I post nice Christian content on my social media feeds. And I would say, that's great, except I have to scroll through all your political hatred to find it. You see, you've missed the point. You might say, I listen to worship songs on the radio and on my phone. And I would say, that's great. But if you're using that device to watch pornography, you've missed the point. Do you see how we can take the, the, law, the laws of scripture and we can turn them into legal codes and we can make ourselves feel like really good law-abiding citizens and our hearts be corrupted the entire time? And Jesus is saying, that should not be. That should not be for those who would follow him. I think a second thing Jesus reveals is that our hearts matter as much as our hands. 
that what's going on internally is just as important as what's going on externally. And see, I think we're really good at managing behavior more than we are checking our hearts. It's really easy for me to change a behavior. It's really hard to let my heart be changed because there's something deeper in there, something more spiritual in there. But we want to focus on just behavior modification instead of letting our hearts be transformed. There's a really uh, interesting passage of scripture. I would encourage you to read it this week. You may not walk away from it feeling good, but you might walk away from it feeling convicted, which would be even better. It's Matthew chapter 23. If you get a chance, you just jot that down, Matthew 23. Jesus addresses the religious leaders of his day. And he, he, he kind of reveals this point about the heart. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is saying to this group of religious people, you've done a really good job of making the exterior look good and look righteous. You appear to have it all together, but at the heart level, you are a mess. You are a wreck. Yeah, you follow all the rules. You could consider yourself a good citizen, but you're a mess. And so he's saying, listen, your heart matters as much as your hands do. Yes, we want to be disciplined, but we want to be changed from the inside. And I tend to think he's basically saying the only way to do this is to surrender. The path to this type of life is not in our own power. It's through surrender. You'll be familiar with the name Benjamin Franklin. I was looking for a $100 bill to show you this morning. Turns out I don't have one. Um, You might feel the same. So you're going to be familiar with Benjamin Franklin, his his famous kite experiment. You're a super intelligent guy, one of the founding fathers. One thing that he tried to do that many people don't know about is he tried to achieve moral perfection. It was an experiment that he laid out that he thought he could achieve moral perfection. Here's what he did. This, this is not actually Benjamin Franklin's writing, okay? He didn't have a spreadsheet. So he took 13 values, 13 things he thought every man should strive to. I'm not gonna try to go through the list. Not all of them are even biblical. But he's saying 13 things every man should strive for. And then he put the days of the week across the top. And he had this little leather-bound book and his, he would walk around and when he would fail at one of the virtues, he would put an X in the box, Every time he failed. His goal being that day after day, week after week, month, year, that eventually his pages would be less marked up. That he would eventually get to a place where his pages were clean and he could be morally perfect. This was his experiment. Can man make himself morally perfect? And for as smart as the guy was, seems like this would have been a self-defeating exercise, don't you think? Because you know how broken you are, I know how broken I am, and that we can't achieve moral perfection on our own. But I wonder if this is sort of how we live our lives. You don't carry a book around where you give yourself demerits, I know that. But is that how we think? That we walk around thinking, well, I'm just gonna try to be better tomorrow than I am today and hopefully have fewer demerits in my life so that by the time I get to the end of my life, maybe my page will be clean and Jesus will let me into heaven. 
Or like I'm carrying this metaphorical book around, and when I get to the gates of heaven, I'll give it to Jesus, and he'll run it through the Scantron machine, and hopefully I'll get graded into heaven, that I'll have just few enough demerits that I can get in. I think that's what Jesus is saying. You've heard it said, just keep the rules and you'll get to heaven. But that's not how it works. You see, Benjamin Franklin didn't make progress. We will make progress if we, if we work toward it. And we should work hard. We are, stri- we are called to be holy. And there are disciplines we can put into our lives to try and, and get control of our behavior and our thinking. Those aren't bad things, but they won't save us. You see, because here's the reality. A less sinful me is still a sinful me. Even if I worked really hard on that book and I got to a page where there's only one mark, I'm still disqualified. I'm still morally imperfect. In fact, scripture says, if you've broken one law, you are a law breaker. And so there's nothing we can do to be morally perfect. We can try to keep all the rules and miss the point of it completely. See, one mark disqualifies us from heaven. And yet the really good news of the gospel is that there is a man whose book is clean. There is a man who lived a perfect life. And he didn't just live the perfect life and keep it to himself. No, he said, listen, I will exchange books with you. I will give you my life of perfection in exchange for your life of imperfection. And I will die the death that is deserved because of that. You see, scripture says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't say, don't follow the rules. He came to say, I will fulfill the law. Everything that should be done will be done in me. And that's where perfection will be found. Not in your own efforts, not in white knuckling through life and trying to be better tomorrow than you were today, but by surrendering to Christ and letting our hearts be changed. You see, being changed from the inside out, let our hearts be changed and then our hands will change. Our behavior will follow our beliefs. So he's saying, you've heard it said, keep the rules. I'm saying, live by the spirit and follow me. I love the way David writes in Psalm 51, kind of a prayer. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Seems like that would be an appropriate prayer for us to pray. But sometimes we live our lives by our own power and we think we're going to take care of everything on our own. But what we end up doing is just realizing we're imperfect and sometimes dig deeper holes than we have to. That the path is actually through surrender, not through working harder. As I was reading that scripture, uh, an old song came to mind. Some of you, if you've been in church world for a while, you'll remember a, a Chris Tomlin song from years ago. And the chorus says, give us clean hands and give us pure hearts and let us not lift our souls to another. And I thought that's a perfect prayer for us to pray this morning. And so if you would allow me, I'd like to sing that over you for a moment. You can use it as your prayer. So you you can close your eyes if you want. You can sing along if you know the song, but I'm just gonna sing a couple of passes of that chorus and just let it be our prayer together this morning to give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, 
that we would not lift our soul to another. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. God, that is our prayer, that you would give us clean hands, more importantly, pure hearts, that we would not lift our souls to anyone else but you. So God, forgive us for when we think that we have achieved some sort of perfection. God, forgive us if we've turned your spiritual commands into legal codes that we follow. God, what that does is it makes us rigid and judgmental. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't obey your laws. It doesn't mean that we should throw scripture out the window. It's saying that if we follow you, if we follow the spirit, live by the spirit, then we won't gratify the desires of our sinful nature. God, I pray that if there's anyone listening who is caught in a life of just uncleanliness, that they realize today that, man, I've been trying really hard, but the truth is I'll come up short. That they don't hear that as a defeating statement. It would be defeating if there was no way out. But God, you've given us a way out. You said, I will give you my life. Jesus, you laid down your life so that we could, could live. And so help us to surrender to that so our hearts can be changed. And for those of us who have been following you for a while, I pray we surrender again daily. That we surrender our pride, surrender our pursuit of perfection and instead surrender to your will and let you live through us. So God, we give you our lives. It's your goodness that we cling to. Be with us, Lord. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.